Yo, Asymmetry, what's up, everybody? On our commute recently in Australia from Sydney to Canberra for the Bonsai Masters event at the National Collection in Canberra, uh, I was joined by Lime and David Siegel. David's been on our podcast before, Australian bonsai artist and one of the many people really fueling the growth and exploration of native uh, material in the bonsai culture of Australia. And David and Lime and I decided to podcast on the road didn't know what was going to come of it. David cracked the seal on a very, I would say, commonly wondered but lowly discussed question of, how do I feel when another bonsai professional changes the design of a tree that I've created? Obviously, there's a lot of things to discuss in terms of that question, but we dig pretty deep, talk about all the ins and outs, nuances, feelings, practicalities, and uh, I think it's an interesting discussion. Hope you guys enjoy. And uh, look forward to releasing all of the remaining podcasts from Australia because there's some monsters in here. But this is a good one. Enjoy. I'll just, um, I'll think about that. I'll think about I think, it. I think the conversation of how you go about handling a tree that has reached a point of maturity, how do you handle that shape and aesthetic? I think that's a debate that exists everywhere? Um, well, it's definitely a topic of hot debate in Australia at the moment in terms of a lot of these trees that find themselves in the hands of new owners, um, particularly trees of like significant uh, importance in the Australian bonsai community, where I think there's a little bit of pushback to change those trees in, in fear that it may disrespect the intentions of the original artist and by moving it forward you're you're almost going against what that person wanted for that tree or its future yeah i mean that, that, but this is such an interesting thing though right because obviously the medium doesn't stop changing we're all aware of that That's, there's nothing shocking about that or groundbreaking about that but when you start to talk about the fact that the person that created the tree, although they got it to that point or they set set whatever up or set the, the ball in motion to take that tree to that point, they're no longer the owner. But that's not to say if they couldn't perpetually continue keep continue caring for that tree that they wouldn't come to another point of evolution in their bonsai approach where they would make a dramatic change on that shape, right? And so it passed, changed hands. And in that changing of hands, of course there's gonna be a different interpretation. But the thing that we don't quite grasp in Western culture, or at least the bonsai cultures in in the the Western world, is that the the more hands that have touched a tree, although obviously at any time you could do significant damage and set a tree back greatly or alter it for the worse for good. If that doesn't happen, which there Every time somebody puts their hands on a tree, there's a risk that's going to happen, right? It's part of the risk-reward aspect of bonsai. But every time somebody touches that tree and that doesn't happen, that tree has more interest, more input, more provenance. And that's important. That's important to not stop the growth of that, to try, to try and maintain somebody's vision when that vision is such a ephemeral moment with that tree and to try to make that, that tree's reality for 
the duration of time is just not a re it's not a realistic way to conceptualize bonsai. I don't think you it, the tree can't do it. You can't do it. Yet there's so much debate about doing it. It's like, but everything's saying that's not possible. Mm. But then it's like, I think the debate and I think the scary thing comes from having the knowledge or at least a fundamental foundation that you base those changes on to take a tree that has provenance and history and a clearly mature design and continue moving it forward, hopefully in a positive direction. Like, I don't think that was ever a foundation that was built by discussions of bonsai or maybe was ever understood as an active part of Japanese bonsai. Like when you look at the historical shifts of a lot of the famous trees, I was just looking at uh, the book, The Magician, which was a compilation of like work by Mr. Kimura put out by Stone Lantern, I believe. Uh, there are some very famous trees in there that, that he changed dramatically by removing iconic pieces of the tree. And a lot of that work that he did was very celebrated or, you know, very appreciated. And when you talk about doing that same thing, say for trees in a national collection or trees that have that historical value and it's controversial, it's, that's an interesting thing because if everybody is kind of talking about how these trees carry this history forward and referencing J Japanese approach, well, those trees had a lot of different input and a lot of different iterations of that tree over the course of history that were dramatically different. So it's like, from what basis and position are you saying don't don't further change that tree's aesthetic? It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, I think that there's um, a fundamental concept of tree ownership um, or ownership over a design, um, which maybe is perpetuating that that train of thought. I, I, I believe that if you see yourself as a temporary caretaker of a tree, mm -hmm. Um, and that tree will then be passed on to whoever its next owner is for them to interpret, as you said, interpret that, that piece of work or that material in their own way. Um, and quite often uh, you'll, you'll find a tree um, that wasn't capable of a certain design or a certain aesthetic in its first or second or third iteration. It's only once it's matured to a certain point or branches have grown where then an, another another level of design or another concept can be explored because the trees continue to grow and change. Mm -hmm. um, and I think bonsai is unique in that it's an art form that you can keep coming back to and interpreting the material in a different way or enhancing it or as you grow and change as an artist or a person, you, the, way you've, the way that a piece of material touches you or the way in which you feel you want to respond to it will evolve just as the tree's evolving. Mm -hmm. Um, when Offer Gronwald was in Australia, was it last year or the year before? He was giving a, a, a discussion on how unique bonsai is in art is in that as soon as you've finished placing that last piece of, of foliage where it, that as soon as you turn around that tree's changed, mm -hmm. even if it's at a microscopic level, like it's changed, it's forever changing and it feels to hold, to hold that back and to stop the tree from responding is unnatural but uh, i mean again like if you're gonna if you're gonna take a tree that's reached an iconic level of design or maturation having the foundation to base your decisions on and like breaking boneside down to a degree where those decisions that are being made are so intentionally 
considered that they do contribute to an improvement in the, in the aesthetic of the tree, which really means digging into the whole concept of what does it mean? You know, what's the purpose of restyling a tree? Well, it's, it's, it has to be to make that tree better based on the merits and what the tree is giving you. But then you also have to have the concepts of like, what does it mean to add age to a tree visually? Like, what does that represent in terms of broad concepts? Mm. More negative space, remnants of the branches that, or pieces of the tree that were, uh, you know, more asymmetry to show the random acts of nature and preserve the wildness of the aesthetic, if that's the priority. You know, and I think in Japan, what you typically saw were trees just like hover around that teenage year of life, mm. you know, but, but what, what uncontrollable, what uncontrolled or untouched by man landscape was there to continue driving forward the notion of truly ancient in a, like a, a heavily developed portion of the world? Like J Japan as an island is heavily occupied and heavily touched by the people that live on that island. And when you look at Europe, Europe's been developed over a very, very long period of time. So there's not a lot of land that hasn't been cultivated or manipulated. And I really think that's where in, in some of the these countries that still have a lot of really wild places, there's room for that expansion of understanding of where you can take a tree when it does sort of reach that point that it no longer reflects wild anymore. Naturally, a tree is going to move back towards, back towards a youthful shape and when, you're, when it's provided with everything that it wants and needs, right? It's going to move back towards symmetry, most efficient system to... to physiologically function that's just the inherent direction that it goes it's um well i guess it comes back to what your aesthetic is in terms of are you trying to represent nature in miniature or are you creating a different form of art well but isn't that so dangerous if you're like okay so even if even if somebody who creates a tree creates that tree with a hugely asymmetrical design over the course of that tree's maturation and growing into that design, it's going to naturally move back towards symmetry. And then all of a sudden that's passed on in this symmetrical form and, and people are saying, don't change it, don't evolve it. Well, now the tree is actually moved sort of backwards in its representation of age. Because even if you think about pursuing the bonsai form, whatever, whatever, that, whatever that means, right? Pursuing the bonsai form or pursuing a natural reflection of nature in miniature, both of those both of those design pursuits have still have the ability to be pushed in terms of their degree of asymmetry right absolutely um, it's like, I think I think that I think when people want to hold back a tree from evolving perhaps they're thinking about it from it's about the artist or is it about the tree is I, I are you creating this? Are you creating this bonsai for your own satisfaction about you as an artist, or are you, or are you trying to create something that's? I'm just I'm just trying to understand that people wanting to hold it back is it because about the ego of the person that created, or feeling like they've disrespected that person that created that design? Mm. So is it about the tree allowing the tree to to evolve and mature and and hopefully become better over time? 
by doing that, is that a sign of disrespect to the person that originally created it? Yeah, yeah, and I, and I mean, I think it also comes down to like confidence in the individuals that are making those decisions too, right? Like how how what kind of a body of work in making those kinds of alterations has been put forth to show that the judgment about the decision is there and going to bear fruit more often than not or more likely than not, right? Because one of the things that we're getting into in Western culture now, having had bonsai in different Western cultures for long enough now that we actually are seeing these trees pass on or are seeing these trees get to a point where it is more or less mandatory that they be worked and reconsidered or else even the original design is going to forever lose its merit, right? You can't hold it there. It's still growing. It's still expanding. But then there, there's been so much focus when you look at Europe on the initial styling of trees, the demonstration model, the, the, the collecting boom. Really, that initial styling was such a focus. And I think we're moving into a point in a lot of different bonsai cultures outside of Japan where we are having to confront that moment of restyling. And I think restyling is, is an, an under-discussed aspect of bonsai for bonsai cultures that haven't existed with bonsai for a long time. Mm. To understand the technique and the change of mentality that's applied to be able to be respectful yet bear fruit in the movement of that tree forward, carry tones of the original concept into the evolving concept, but still evolve the concepts of the tree is both you know, physiologically, photosynthetically capable of doing its job, but also aesthetically representing some of the original merit, but also the potential of the future. And that, it could be that that skill set, that muscle hasn't been exercised enough. And I'm sure there will always be apprehension when a very famous or historical tree is altered or changed. But the practitioners raising their level and really developing the skills and the change of mentality around those two scopes of work is probably another phase of evolution in bonsai cultures that are growing and evolving and starting to mature to be able to put their hands on a raw piece of material and a mature piece of material responsibly. Mm. Here's a question for you. Mm. You've had some of your trees we worked, mm -hmm. reworked and yep. evolved. Yeah. Um, by other well-known, respected artists in the in the community, how do you how do how did you feel with that? How did you respond to seeing a piece of work that you created changed and evolved? And whether or not you think it was better or worse, I guess is beside the point. Just in terms of yeah. how you felt about having your work altered as a, as a as a professional. Well, I mean, I think there's like a few undeniable facts, and and you know, some of those facts would be once it's out of your hands, it's really not your work anymore, right? Like you gave that tree an initial direction, like you're part of that tree's provenance now as a bonsai, but if you're not out there traveling to all of the trees that have passed through your hands and continuing to perpetuate and move that tree forward, somebody else is gonna have to do that. Because honestly, there, there is a necessity for bonsai professionals to be out there helping people with these complex trees that are part of their collection, but maybe they don't know how to. They don't have necessarily those muscles or techniques to be able to move that tree forward. So then you accept. If you're not going to be the one out there, you accept that, that it's going to pass through other hands. And you have to kind of put your money where your mouth is in terms of recognizing like, okay, this is going to take a different direction. 
and I, I put it in this direction because I thought it was the right thing. The next artist that's called upon to work on that tree puts it in this direction because they saw something different. Whether you agree with it or not, or whether you wish they had seen what you had seen or, or valued what you had valued or not, it still is adding to the tree's overall provenance and history because that tree is going to continue to change regardless, right? And the only thing I think that's really devastating if it does happen is to see significant portions of the tree lost or removed that will never be replaceable. You know, that's the, that's the biggie. When that, when that starts to happen, then it's like, ooh, man, okay, that's, that's really not going to be able to come back from that or, or have another iteration that sort of chimes in on the ori original design concept. But, but it's out of your hands. Mm. It's out of your hands. Yeah. So it's like a balance of respect between the original artist, but also for the tree to move forward in its own evolution. Well, I, yeah, because yeah. I think each tree has its own path, and that path is probably going to be paved by multiple hands. You would hope, you hope so. so. You would yeah, hope, you so. hope so. That adds to the yeah. historical significance of that tree, and that's a big part of bonsai is that history. But also, you, you do have to accept that everybody's interpretation is going to be different, seeing those interpretations also if you've had an, a hand in that tree and seeing how it changes is educational like it is something that everybody takes in and kind of learns from for the good for the bad for the like for the dislike it, it's important that that happen and that i think seeing that muscle exercised is what's going to evolve people's notions of how do i move a tree forward seeing examples of different interpretations as that tree evolves, only feeds in the development of the concepts that allow us to approach that material really responsibly. I mean, it's a big, it's a big deal to handle a historical tree. Yeah, I mean, you've been dealing with a lot of historical trees. Um, as of late, I think that um, you've got a stream coming up soon with something on a another Benoki tree. Yeah, Is that right? Uh, yeah. Well, it'll it'll be the first Benoki tree that we've ever done a stream on, and it'll only be one of maybe a handful of Benoki trees I've ever gotten to work on. I got to work on some really prominent Benoki buttonwoods down at the Murakami Museum in Florida uh, early on in my professional career, and that was really pretty special. But this one, this one was a big one. You know, I mean, Ben collected it and styled it and historically had continued input in its aesthetics. But I think, you know, right now we have two John Naka trees up at Mirai, one that uh, is going to remain at Mirai, and then one that we've been asked to take it back to the design of the original John Naka sketch, which I think is an absolutely phenomenal design challenge, right? Like, don't apply your interpretation, apply your technique and skill set to reflecting John's interpretation again, which is like, okay, now this gets back into that whole discussion of like but you can't take a tree back you can't hold a tree back once a tree evolves to a certain point you do have more tools to try and tap into those original concepts of its original design i'm fascinated by what this is going to look like i've um seen some artists that seem to want to try and hold a tree in stasis yeah to sort of freeze frame it at, right. that, at that moment in time um is that i mean i'm assuming obviously that's potentially compromising the health of the tree, I mean, to try and hold it in that. I think it's that. pretty difficult. I, yeah. I think it's pretty difficult, and I think what ends up happening is eventually the tree 
will get weak enough by not being allowed to grow and change its shape and form that something catastrophic happens that changes it anyways, changes it inevitably. Yeah. You know, and then it's like, so then you spend the next 10 years trying to get it, get it back to health and to the shape that in that effort lost a lot of that tree's quality or do you think about the next step? And that next step is, I mean, the Katsumi Kenosha to Monterey Pine that we streamed on was like, this, is, this was a monumental rebuild process for that tree that lasted four years with the Clark Collection to get it to where it is now. You know, and it's, I mean, I, th I would say it's a pretty strong deviation from where the tree was w once I started working on it, but that was also a very strong deviation than where Ka uh, Mr. Kenoshita had taken it before it had passed hands. So it's, I don't know, com complex discussion. Complex. But but this is why I, I think, like, I have a lot of respect for, say, like, the Pacific Bonsai Museum. This is a public collection that is... This the, is the one that Aaron takes care of? This is the one that Aaron, yeah. Aaron Packard curates. And, I mean, this is a public collection that is continuing to alter the shape of the trees and trying to advance those trees forward. And I think there's a healthy... I think there's a healthy balance of respecting the initial design and, and maintaining some trees closer to the original design and a healthy respect for evolving some trees and continuing to drive them forward. What do you think, Lime? I mean, you're relatively um, new to the world of bonsai. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, looking at, at trees, does it feel natural to you to, uh, to sort of hold them in, that, in, that, uh, in their current form or, or keep them how the art is originally designed? Or does it feel natural to you as someone that's new to the art to I, sort of evolve them? I brought it up with Ryan a couple of times. Like I, I think that sometimes trees, they've just outgrown that look. And sometimes they need to be changed. Like fashion? You know, yeah, <laughs> or no, not just, you know, things. It's a growing living art and sometimes they just need to be changed to just give them a more beautiful aesthetic. And other times it's, kind of nice to just keep it where it is i mean at both ends i think have merit you know i guess that's a part of the thing that drew me to bonsai is the art form isn't really it's not really about you in the end ultimately it's about the tree so letting go sometimes can be kind of cool i don't know i look at a tree and then ryan walks up and goes well, look at this different angle well maybe sometimes you don't see that first you know having a new perspective on a tree gives it like a whole new life so i like both both directions yeah i'm i'm reworking um i'm reworking big blue right now which is the randy knight's tree that won the artisan's cup oh that's a that's a mind-blowing tree yeah <laughs> yeah and and i mean that tree when i first designed it had a lot of had a lot of concepts from my apprenticeship in japan still being applied to it and there were always things that I didn't find as appealing about that or I found troubling about it, but it was a tree that just had so much quality. It was undeniable uh, and had a lot of maturity on it when it was exhibited, which was undeniable. But getting to come back and remove a lot of what was on the tree that won the Artisan's Cup and, again, change its direction, you've, you've got to hope that like those decisions are well-rooted and grounded in solid design concepts and stuff and who who's who's to say that the new design is going to be better than the old design i mean this is going to be a matter of taste and preference but i think 
in choosing those new design directions, you you do hope that you open or unlock aspects of the tree that weren't tapped to tapped into in the initial or in the evolution of the initial to the proportion that it grew into. And really, like for me, when I think about trying to evolve a design concept, I have to have the trigger. So like Lime's saying, sometimes leaving it is really nice and sometimes you need to make a, a big change. For me, I try to I try to quantify what is that, where is that moment where I make that decision. And for me, the moment comes when the foyer mass has outgrown the size and the silhouette that gives it, that gives, still gives visual attention to the actual characteristics of the tree I value that drive your attention to the unmanipulatable characteristics of the trunk, the base, the features of the tree that give that piece of material value. Well, when the, the canopy gets so big and gets so full and gets so large and wide and distant from those characteristics, those characteristics stop mattering. And it's like when, it, when you start to look at a tree and you stop valuing the uniqueness of those characteristics, for me, that's the trigger. That's the moment where it's like, okay, now we've now gone past the proportion where this tree has value. It's time to look at how do we regain the proportion. And oftentimes what regaining the proportion means is removing big structural pieces to be able to close down the design again, right? And the tree's given you things over the evolution that you didn't have before that enable that reduction of the size, but also probably change the, the direction of the design slightly, whether it's a harmonious design to a harmonious design, but you have more negative space, more deadwood, and that harmonious design has more asymmetry, or whether it's harmonious design to tension or harmonious design to dynamic or whatever that shift is, you're taking those pieces that the tree's giving you and you're opening up those opportunities to regain that proportion. That, 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 for me, that's my overarching guide, guiding sort of lighter concept. And without that, I wouldn't be able to responsibly act on those restylings in a way that's different than an initial styling on a raw piece of material. Uh, coming to Marai for the first time, one of the things that really was an eye-opener for me, well, it was lots of things that were eye-openers, but one of the major things, and again, it's been further re, uh, reinforced by the, by the streams that you guys do, um, is that you need to allow a tree to grow out and become unruly and become vigorous. And in that process, those pieces that worked in that design, when they're allowed to, when you allow the tree to grow and regain its energy and to be sustainable for the long term, when you come back to, to sort of work on that tree again, those pieces perhaps have grown out of proportion. It's not possible to maintain them in the design. And right. I think there's a, there's a, and I was definitely um, one of these people that thought that bonsais stayed how they were. You, they had to be constantly attended to and pinched and mm -hmm. kept and trying to hold in that position where it's like, if you want to sustain these, these pieces over a long period of time, you need to allow them to be trees. And in that process, when you come back to them, certain things that were there before are not possible to, to keep anymore. Well, and I mean, isn't this all just a product of potentially, when you think about it, fear, right? Like the fear, like what, because I, I really relate to that. I mean, I had the same sensation, right? Like I've got to keep this tree looking this awesome. If it grows out, I don't know how to get it back to be that awesome again. That's like, that's the fear. I don't want to lose the awesomeness of this because I don't know how to get it back. So I'm just gonna keep it here. And in keeping it there, the tree's just like, ah, quit, quit tampering with me, right? Like, stop, dude, just let me grow for a little bit. I just need to add some needle mass, get some new roots, 
rebuild that vascular structure a little bit and then you can like and then you can have your moment again but i think too what we're learning how do you build like a really sound structure? What's the difference between a sound structure and a, a deciduous versus a broadleafed evergreen versus a conifer? And how do you get that? And then once you get that, what do you do with that? And this is all of a sudden where we start to talk about the different stages of training from the structural creation, that initial styling and setting those big bones to secondary branch expansion and wiring out the actual legitimate full secondary twigginess of your pads. And then finally, how do you get that fine transition and ramification relationship with the pot refinement process? And then once that refinement process peaks out and you get that proportion overgrown, now what's the muscle, the technique and the thought process behind going in and advancing that material to regain that proportion? Because to regain the proportion and take it back to what it was is not to continue to move the material forward, right? You're moving backwards in time. That doesn't make sense. Like that, that's to negate the value of time. Bonsai is supposed to be an expression and a representation of time. Why would you take away the fruits of time? You know what I'm saying? Like you got to, you you have to use that. That's a part using time as a tool. If time, when we talk about bonsai as a medium, what makes it so special? Well, it's this art form that occurs over time and never starts stops growing and all of this stuff. It's like, well then. How are you using that mechanism of this art form that makes it so special to the benefit of evolution? Mm. It's interesting when you um, think about that concept of letting trees grow out and become vigorous and regain their energy. You sort of, I, I sort of draw that parallel between that and, like, say, a bodybuilder, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, like those bodybuilders don't look super shredded on stage all the time. Right. They, there's a lot of work that goes on in the background off season. They're bulking, they're putting on size, and then they get ready for a, a moment in time where they're at their absolute peak. But they don't come back the next year the same. Like every year is different, but it's like they work towards a pivotal moment in time sure. when they're at their aesthetic peak. And I sort of think there might be some, maybe it's a crude analogy, a crude sort of comparison, but like that's kind of sort of what happens with bonsai. You, you, sure. You bring them to that point, but you can't hold them there. It's not sustainable. Yeah. Just yeah. I mean, a bodybuilder's got like 3% body fat, yeah. like almost an unsurvivable low level of body fat and low level of water in their body when they go out on stage to show that pinnacle like yeah. definition. Right. And I, I think, I think the difference between comparing a bodybuilder to bone size, the fact that a bodybuilder peaks out physically probably in their late twenties, early thirties. And I don't know if that's the time frame, but whatever, right? They peak out at some point and then physically they can't continue to do that. But a bonsai tree doesn't. A bonsai tree doesn't peak out because there's really not an end to the tree's life. I mean, if you consider the fact that long-lived bonsai are just a miracle that nobody killed them more than how old they are, right? Like when you see an ancient tree in the mountains, it's like, well, over the course of several thousand years of forest fire, insects, disease, and drought haven't claimed the life of that tree. Like that's impressive, but that tree is still growing very rapidly and capable of producing really super vigorous growth. I mean, that's a fascinating difference in that equation. Um, well, if you take, for example, uh, junipers, I guess like a very sort of extravagant species that, um, they tell their story through the, the relationship between the live and the dead, and that deadwood's very much a, a part of that tree's story and, right. and what makes it look amazing. But those trees are evolving in nature. If these trees weren't continuing to evolve and deal with harsh 
totally harsh uh, climactic conditions or snowfall or winds and all those sorts of things that dead would ne would never have been created right so if you if nature was to take the same approach we wouldn't have these amazing pieces of material right yeah, and I mean, I think it's interesting, too, to think about the human as the, as the random act of nature in bonsai, because when you talk about what takes a young tree out of its perfectly symmetrical form, well, it's random acts of nature that cause the asymmetrical form to exist. The more random acts of nature over a longer course of time that occur, the more asymmetry is generated in the shape of that tree. The more negative space, the more remnants or, or you know, quantities of deadwood that expand with that, with that course of time and random acts of nature. So... That, 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 if you think about it in the bonsai form, that random act of nature is the human touch now. Well, That's we're where we're you nature. We are nature. Oh, <laughs> for sure. I mean, like in the horticultural world, you'd call it man blight. <laughs> like identifying abiotic issues, man blight was a real thing in the horticultural world. Well, I don't know. The tractor's exhaust pipe was pointed at that whatever, Texas pine tree juniper bush while it was warming up as the farmer started the engine to go plow the field or you know, haul tree, whatever, right? Whatever the story is, a little overspray around up, car ran over it in the shopping, shopping mall parking lot. Like y you name it, man blight is a, is a genuine contributor to deformation of perfectly good, beautiful, symmetrical plants. <laughs> Just the same as rock fall, excessive snow, avalanche, lightning, whatever you want to consider it. The same thing. Mm. It's, um, I think people discount human beings as being like a natural intervention. Oh, I think you're right. Yeah, it's like if, if man touches it, all of a sudden it's artificial, but we're a product of this world just like everything else. Well, and this is where when you say multiple hands have touched a tree and it adds value, if each one of those is a, is a uh, <laughs> more, more or less a gesture of a uh, cataclysmic hmm. event that occurred on that tree, or uh, some sort of you know, momentary move out of the symmetrical form or standard growth habit, then technically it should be adding quality and character mm. to the tree, right? Yeah. Well, I guess that, you know, we circle back to the quality of work that's being done, the skill of the, of yeah. the technician or the artist. And I think that all the, whether you, um, whether you agree or don't agree with the philosophy of evolving a tree forward, I think what's pivotal is that, that especially with these pieces that have uh, signif of cultural significance or um, that the work being done is done respectfully and people are doing scopes of work that they're capable of, of actually yeah, performing. they're equipped for, yeah, sure. And I think that's probably a bit of a disclaimer with, the, with, in, with this conversation in general, is that we're making that assumption. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think we're we're learning that maybe that that needs to be a part of the consideration if if the fear is going to be removed from, or the apprehension of a big change in a tree is going to be, it's going to be less fearful. There's going to be less conflict. There's going to be less disagreement if if there's faith in the skills and the vision and sort of handling of that operation that whoever's being tasked at performing that has. But I think too. You also can always look at the fact that certain artists find more beauty in the form closer to the symmetrical iteration of the tree. And some artists find more, more beauty in the further degree of the asymmetrical form, the greater representation of age. And 
both of those things are equally as valid. There's nothing that says we are trying to do this with bonsai. That's up to each individual person, what they're trying to do, communicate, convey, find beautiful when they work on bonsai. And so, you know, the whole conversation can be completely nullified just by the ethos of the individual that's being asked to work on it. Now, what I would say to that is that means that people hiring a professional to work on their trees should be very selective about who they choose to perform different scopes of work. And that, I think, is also where the knowledge of design is evolving in a lot of bonsai cultures. People are starting to understand, oh, there isn't a right and a wrong way. There's different ways. And this professional handles things like this. This professional handles things like this. This professional handles things like this. It's almost like now in the working of really prominent trees, I think it would be fascinating if if it was almost like uh, having to submit a bid or or something like almost commercially like design that. Design idea. Exactly. Like, like yeah. here's a collection. Like think about this for the Canberra National Collection. We have this tree that we're going to restyle. We want to bring a prominent professional in. Reach out to all the professionals that are under consideration and say, what would you do with this tree? What would be your design direction? Oh, like an architect coming then, in to do a and job. Then, and then they get to select what works well with that tree from that culture, with the his- historical significance of it, et cetera. Like that, that's never something that I've seen happen, but w- how, how amazing would that be? That's a cool concept. I like that concept. Well, we've had, um, I've had like similar discussions with, um, with Lee, who's the curator of the National Collection around ideas and concepts for certain trees of, of significance within the collection that have permanently donated or what have mm-hmm. you, and discussing ideas and saying, hey, look, you know, like, I understand there are certain people that are potentially nervous right. about allowing these trees to go into someone's hands where they could be making significant changes. But I mean, when I worked on a tree for them just recently, I did a sketch of what I sort of had envisaged and had references of um, trees in nature that I was using to inspire the mm-hmm. direction that I was heading. And I think that, like you've hit it on the head, I think that it's, I think it comes down to uh, communication, like paradigm shifts. Um, and as you said, making sure that the, the artist that's touching it um, has been carefully selected and is doing it respectfully and with the appropriate skills and, and techniques um, to do it justice. Um, well, yeah. and, and I mean, I think you can honestly say, like, if you're a professional that's brought in to do a scope of work and you don't have that sensation of trust by the people that have hired you to do that work, it's very, very difficult to do that tree justice. Yeah, because you'd be all constantly second-guessing yourself in yeah. every decision that you make. And yeah, and I think it takes a very, I, I think it takes a very confident professional to have somebody second-guessing you and to have the belief in your idea, so that you're like, I, I understand this is uncomfortable for you. I understand that these decisions are very difficult. Take your time and feeling comfortable with it, but this is still what I'm, what I feel is the very best direction to go. And I think. The sign of a true professional is being able to accommodate and adapt their design to decisions that the owner or curator of the tree doesn't necessarily agree with and to be able to present those options. But I also think it's the job of a professional to fully communicate the the goals and the future of that tree with that highest level of design that they feel they can execute, what that will bring to that tree over the course of time. And all of a sudden now, it does come back to that relationship of communication and trust. And also, I think that background of successful actualizations of those design concepts on other pieces that carry weight. Mm. 
So if you're not prolific as a bonsai professional, showing those different aesthetic options that you can execute in a tree and you, and you haven't shown or proven that, that that's a scope that you're capable of, then I do believe the trust factor is always gonna be hard because these trees do carry, they're time capsules. They carry history, they carry personality, they carry the hands that have worked on them before, and they really are big pieces of history that form the beating hearts of a lot of collections. Absolutely. Um, and I think getting back to the demo model, I think in some ways the, the demo model, in, whilst it's very entertaining, can be quite dramatic to see trees go through rapid transformations in a sure. relatively short space of time. I, I do feel that in some ways we've created a rod for our own back in that by making the demo such a, um, a pivotal part or so something that's so important, I think that th th sometimes compromises are made in terms of the way someone may initially design a tree, in terms of the way it's, it's structurally designed. And then also we don't get trained as people watching these demonstrations to ever appreciate the development process that goes on beyond that initial demonstration yeah, and, sure. and, and being exposed to that design evolution over time. And, and that's something that I think that's so important about the work that you're doing is that you're, you've got such a large body of work now that I think people know what you're capable of and the mm. quality of the trees that you produce you know when you and that's been some of the most powerful stuff to me is like watching your streams and going oh that's where we're stopping today cool yeah or you've cut that branch off and it doesn't look that great right now but mm -hmm. i understand the concept of why and where you're going sure and i think that's part of being exposed to i guess competent bonsai practice and 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 seeing someone who's got such a a prolific um body of work that you trust what they say, you, you understand what they're capable of, and then being educated on beyond just that initial demonstration of yeah. why decisions are being made for the long-term benefit. I mean, you know, Lime, again, um, how do you feel about that sort of situation where, you know, I guess we're exposed to these, you know, five, 10 minute YouTube videos of watching these dramatic transformations and only being exposed to that initial move and that initial design, but not really seeing that full scope of work or seeing various iterations of the same piece of material? Is that something that you think is is influ influential for someone that hasn't been exposed in, to? In a bad way, but yeah. Mariah Live takes it in a different way. Ryan, a lot of times goes up, oh, not getting there, stop. I think that's a good way to teach us patience and respect for the tree. I've, I've learned a lot, of, a lot of patience through the Mariah Live whole gambit because a lot of times you don't get the tree done or Hey, we're at this point. This is, you know, let's let's take a break. You know, let's get back to it later. When you see the 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 on stage demos, where sometimes things are getting rushed, I think, yeah, you're right. Decisions are being made that maybe aren't the greatest decisions. Could have could have been different. You know. Well, and I think too, it's where the ability to communicate when you present. Like there is no bad demo if you can clearly communicate the decisions that are being made. That those other ones could be made. And I think that there's always a goal to make the tree look its very best every time you touch it. And I don't think that's an unhealthy goal. And I don't think demos are unhealthy. I think demos oh. create a very significant uh, piece of provenance for that tree. When was it created under what 
um, occasion made that tree special? You know, how, what was happening at that moment? Because it is, a lot of demos are markers in time for very significant aspects of bonsai. And assuming that they're successful, they continue to live on as that. They are that time capsule that is a piece of that tree's history. And that's where I really like find demos to still be very engaging and very exciting. But a demo where you're simply focused on the structural work because that's the limit to what the tree can take versus a demo where you can carry it into secondary branching versus a demo where you can really follow it through to tertiary branching, knowing as the professional how far can you take that tree and how do you make that lesson about that stage and what that tree has to offer then is a very important part of, of the demo being valuable and the respect being shown to the tree. And that I think that's challenging because you always want your work to be impressive, right? You always want your work to have an impact. You want people to feel as though it was valuable for them to have engaged with you on that level in the creation of that bone site to whatever scope it can be actualized and brought to fruition. But learning and, and understanding how each of those pieces are a valuable part of your capacity to teach means that there's no real bad demo material at that point. It's just another opportunity to teach another aspect of bonsai in this plethora. And I mean, bonsai is such a lifestyle practice. It's not a, it's not something you're ever going to know everything about. And it's not something that you're ever going to stop learning about. It's not something that you're ever going to stop evolving your concepts around if you're passionate about the art form, which is why the same person with the same piece of material, two different days, two different weeks, two, two different months, two different years, two different decades, would handle that tree entirely differently, potentially. That's, um, it's true, like y you can design a tree and, and come back a month later and, and look at it completely differently, like from a completely different perspective. And I think you do get into a zone, like you, you, you sort of come up with a concept and, and you sort of move, move forward with it. And then when you have the ability to step back and look at it when you're perhaps not quite as emotionally involved as you were at that point in time, it allows you to see things that perhaps you couldn't see before sure. or what the next move might potentially be, depending mm -hmm. on how the tree responds to that, that scope of work. Yep. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think too, like, that's where you hope and that's why I think where everybody's trying to get to a point where they can feel fairly confident in the decisions that they're making, that they're going to think it's a good idea in another month, another year, another decade, right? Like developing the experience and the savvy and the predictability in terms of how the tree should or how you hope it responds and you're relatively certain it will respond to confidently make those decisions and know you'll be happy with them. I mean, it's, it's got to be similar to like getting a tattoo except for a tattoo doesn't continue to change, which is probably a good thing. But also, like, when you get a tattoo, it's like, well, I'm going to ink this thing on my body in 10 years. Am I still going to feel good about this? Like, I would think that would be a major consideration. I don't have any tattoos, so I don't really know. But that's what stopped me from having a tattoo. With bonsai, I feel really good about the decisions that I'm making because I've formed kind of my ethos around how I make those decisions to objectively try to take advantage of what the tree is giving me and not what my own current state of mind or bias are applying to it. But also, there are a lot of trees that were designed in 2010, 2011, 2012 at Mirai that now I'm coming back to. And it's not a massive change. They're not being flipped upside down. They're not being, the, the, the back is not becoming the front very often, although it does happen from time to time. But certain degrees of the angle, re removal of the symmetry that's developed over its evolution, continuing to push the degree of asymmetry, expanding the quantity of deadwood, opening up negative 
negative space, etc., further compressing the structure. These are all things that are now happening as that second iteration, that restyling as opposed to the initial structural setting of a raw piece of material. And it is interesting. It's fascinating to track your own evolution as a human and the work that you do and the way that you see trees. I don't know that a lot of people reflect on how they respond to a tree over their course of evolution in the art of bonsai as kind of a really beautiful marker of their own growth. But that's a real aspect of, of the art reflecting the person creating the tree is seeing your decisions as a reflection of your growth and evolution as an individual. In terms of the critiquing process, do you find it difficult to critique your own work? No. No? No, I don't. I don't find it. I don't find it difficult. I mean, there are definitely trees that I look at now that I recognize I either couldn't or wouldn't style them like that anymore. And looking at some of it where I'm like, well, I just couldn't do that now. Like I just couldn't, I couldn't see that or make that decision now based on what I know. But man, the juvenile ignorance of that design or the daringness of that design at a point where I knew less and that was what I thought was gonna be the best has created something I no longer could create now knowing what I know, but I'm glad I created it when I did because it's really, it generated something. And it's just like talking about a ceramicist or when they're just raw and putting that raw passion into their ceramic body and making or doing things that 10 years later they would never do or maybe barely got away with when they first started but are too wise to know that there's too much risk to waste the time or put that effort into it later means those first pieces of ceramics, some of those can be the most cutting edge, beautiful things as a marker of that person's evolution and also as a marker of the juvenile daringness of not knowing in the beginning. I think bonsai has that exact same thing and I think it's, I think it's pretty monumental to recognize that and appreciate it, but also saying like, wow, I really shouldn't have done that or this design really isn't as good as this tree can be just creates the next stage of evolution in that tree's sort of path as a bonsai, right? Um, it's, uh, that's so true in terms of seeing work from people that haven't been indoctrinated into a certain way of thinking or um, institutionalized into a certain school of thought, seeing that, that freedom. There's almost like beauty in that freedom whilst maybe the technique isn't there or the execution isn't quite there but just sure. the, the, the freedom of concept sure and the willingness to explore as you said and to dare and not be confined to a certain way of doing things this is how we move forward yep yeah and i think much like much like you see with a lot of ceramicists where they maybe started out in a different field of ceramics or a different purpose to their ceramic work and they found bonsai, whether it's because they practiced the art form or whether it's because they saw an opportunity in creating bonsai ceramics or a friend asked them to do a piece of work and they recognized they could, they could make more of this and they enjoyed it, that the more that a ceramicist knows about bonsai, typically the more um, routine their work will become or the closer it will look to other bonsai ceramics. And so sometimes that initial is so innovative and out of the box that it's just like, holy cow. And I think you see the same with bonsai practitioners, right? As you do it more and more, 
sort of the corners, the edginess of your practice gets rounded off and doled and chipped and sort of that erosion of that willingness to go outside of the box can really domesticate the the form and shape of the tree and i honestly think that probably when you look at some of the major phases of growth in japan and i think mr kimura is a great representation of this mr kimura's corners on his risk factor and willingness to explore the corners were so sharp so razor sharp that what he did in that exploration broke all of the boundaries of the box and expanded everybody's concept of what bonsai could be and represent as an art form, right? But now at this stage of his career, those corners aren't as sharp. And I think his, his, he's explored and gone through enough evolutions of his aesthetic that you're really seeing a softer, more beautiful, uh, interpretation of the bonsai form from Mr. Kimura and not it's not better it's not worse but you see this change of the person in the work that's being performed and both of all of that body of work because it's been technically sound because it's been horticulturally sound and because it had a artistic merit behind the decisions all of those bodies of work that he's created over his career have been beautiful and appreciable and he's really created a wonderful run of work and interpretations to observe this exact thing, the evolution of the individual and how it's reflected in their work. And that's that like watching that and seeing those periods in his career has really been enlightening and a, an incredible education for, for me just to understand how bonsai is a representation of the person creating it. Do you think that the fact that you're recognizing his work as being less um, dramatic is perhaps contributed by the fact that as a bonsai culture now where we've got so much um, ease or, or so, so, such an uh, an amazing ability to see other people's work um, through the internet and things like that that we're so used to seeing significant changes that perhaps um, seeing what Mr Kimura does now is not as shocking as it used to be because he was really probably one of the first people to do those dramatic changes those you know that on that knife's edge of mm -hmm. what was possible and what was not that he's just still going through the motions but we're just we've become accustomed to significant changes now that it doesn't feel as dramatic i don't think so actually like when i think about it because i don't know that what he's doing is not as dramatic i just think what he's doing is different in the way of it's not as sharp and not sharp like sharp in terms of accurate it's not as sharp in terms of the aesthetic. And so I think like when Mr. Kimura came on the scene and had a massive impact, he was at a point where his blade was very, very sharp. Like even his work prior to everybody's awareness of Mr. Kimura, I mean, I would say Mr. Kimura really burst on the scene, number one, with the translations of Kimbo Magazine and Bonsai Today. And I think number two, with the English publication of one of his three, uh, Japanese books published in Japanese of uh, the bonsai art of Kimura or the bonsai of the magician I forget exactly what they're called but when that that single issue the third issue of the Japanese um, published trio was published in English and all of a sudden you had these dramatic transformations it's like those pieces of work became our reference for what Mr. Kimura was capable of well there were a lot of work pieces of work prior to that 
and even some of the work in that book that is so sharp it's almost like overly artificial or overly worked or he's exploring what to what degree can I impose aesthetic on this tree before it's it's no longer believable or it's no longer a connection point and I think where we're at now is like I think his goal might be how much can I pull back from doing anything or imposing on this tree to where the aesthetic just holds enough tightness to be recognizable and beautiful but but is less controlled than ever before in his career and I think that's that change and what we got used to was the middle ground of that sharpness that's what really changed the game we just had we jumped in when he was at this point in his career and we'd never seen anything like this before I think we'd be equally as moved and shocked by the work do you think it's a um well I wonder whether it's a a conscious move by him or it's just a function of him aging and softening as a person I mean I think I, I don't I don't know, you know, for sure. And I don't even know if it's something that is identifiable to him. I mean, this is only something like over the course of my career that I would like just like saying is critiquing your own work really difficult. It's like, well, over the course of my career, and am I going to be able to see the shifts? I mean, I think there's already shifts happening in 10 years in my career where it's like, oh, interesting. I wouldn't have done that. I, I, I couldn't do that now or I wouldn't do that now, but I'm glad I did it then sort of a thing. That's a that's a marker of a shift in my mind. And I think um, he's doing it intentionally because he's doing what feels right with the representation of himself and the work that he creates right now. So it is intentional in every way, shape and form. It's intentional. He's making a, a decision and he knows Mr. Kimura still has all of those techniques. Right? They didn't go anywhere. He's just selected the very best techniques over a 40-year body of, a, of work and career. And he uses those to the very best of their ability now to bring about what feels right to him in his current mentality and approach to the art form. But that's what a wonderful place to be to be able to select from 40 years of techniques and experiences to be able to pick the very best one now. I mean, that's, that's like a phenomenal place to be in the career of an artist, I would think. You see that a lot with musicians as well. Um, like I'm a, a drummer and I will quite often listen to um, very, very accomplished drummers and just listening to them play the very most basic of beats. Mm -hmm. Even though it might just be a, like a 4-4 basic like rock, rock beat, hearing just the simplicity and the nuances and the technique and just the way something so well executed can make you feel there's beauty in that simplicity and there's beautiful like beauty in that softness when there's almost beauty in the knowing that they could do something so much more complex than that but they chose to do that simple thing Although, there's like yeah. there's a there's a magic in i mean it's the same thing as a ceramicist needing to be able to make a perfectly round symmetrical circle before they create a non-bond or an informal container, right? Knowing that they could make a perfect container is what makes their choice to make an imperfect container have value. Like knowing Mr. Kimura can do these radical things and then his choice is to not makes that intriguing to consider what was it about this tree in this moment that you chose this approach as, a, as opposed to all the radical things you could have done before. You now have to invest a lot of time in that tree and see that decision and 
and pay a lot of value to the decision being made because it comes with 40 years of ability and knowledge and experience that led to that decision being made. You know, it's like, holy shit. And that drummer could, you know, when he was younger, instead of choosing that simple meat beat, might, might've been all over the, right. All the stuff. And then he's just like, no, that's like good enough. But you know, what's beautiful is that every now and again, they'll throw something in that's just so tasteful, mm-hmm. that's so amazingly um, well executed that you know that could only be done by someone who has all those tools and experience in their back pocket. And just seeing flashes or just glimpses of something really, really special yeah. and amongst something that might be quite soft and ordinary, yeah. is, it's amazing. Like, it's, it's, it's ama- yeah, it's amazing to see that. Um, decision-making process and that ability to withhold and not feel the need to show off or not feel the need to um, demonstrate everything that they can do at that moment in time. Yeah, almost like you can see the security they have in their abilities, which that's fascinating. I I went up to look at the Kengo Kuma expansion to the Japanese gardens in Portland. And I went up and saw it with one of my students who's a very seasoned architect. And it was fascinating to go look at that with my student who's, who is had a very long prominent career in architecture because I looked at it and I said, God, I've seen Kengo Kuma's work and this just seems so reserved and under, almost like underserving of what he's capable of. and my the the student that was an architect said see i see the exact opposite i see this as being a brilliant display of confidence in architecture to not have to show and prove himself in this but to create the most simple iteration that allows for the most execution of confidence and beauty and it was just like wow yeah what a learning experience and i think the other thing about it too that becomes very interesting when you see somebody truly proficient pull back on letting their ego just rock and roll or trying to execute the most wild thing to see the style that they put into that simple form. Just a little bit of a drag on the drum beat, right? Just a little bit of a drag, almost playing the spaces between the notes more than playing the notes. It's like when you're young, You understand how to play the notes and you can play the notes in all kinds of radical ways, but do you manipulate the spaces between the notes as well? Like in bonsai, just like the hang of the branch, the angle of the structure, the way the tip is handled or maybe not handled to allow that slight degree of organic to just peek its head out of that style and show the fruits of the tree's collaboration with the work, that nuance can be something that takes 40 years to develop the experience to be able to express in a tree. And the number of people that are probably gonna appreciate that decision is probably gonna be very small, but the people that are gonna appreciate it, their recognition of that is more valuable than the greater population's uh, opinion about the work being tight enough, sharp enough, or dramatic enough. I, I, I would think at that point. It's like a treasure hunt. It's like it's there if you're able to see it, if you're able to find it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, and I mean, I think you have certain professionals, certain Western professionals that understand that concept 
far earlier on than other ones. And I think you have some that will develop it. And I think you have some that probably won't, right? And again, it it spans that gauntlet of all of the different approaches and aesthetics and necessities for that color to be part of the bonsai art form. But I mean, I really look at Peter Warren's understanding of those nuances in my mind is is far more enhanced than maybe any other Western artist. I think David Benevente has a very beautiful understanding uh, in different ways than Peter, but their work really sort of carries that nuance and appreciation of those finer levels of masterful detail. And it, it, it's so enlightening to look at other professionals' work and just be like, phew, wow, did not consider that. I mean, I still go back to, and I've spoken about this a lot, but Scott Elser is a very prominent bonsai practitioner in Portland, Oregon who's been doing bonsai for a very long time at a very high level, studied with a lot of different people, um, and has just produced a tremendous body of work. And he wired out a Western hemlock, or excuse me, uh, yes, a Western hemlock for um, the Natives exhibition at the Pacific Bonsai Museum. And when you looked at it, it was so soft the way that the, the Western hemlock grows on a, in a coastal region, accumulates a lot of rain instead of snow. The mountain hemlock would be more mountainous, more snow. And the aesthetics of the two is different. And it had this soft kind of droopiness to the, the, the foliar mass. And he said, I wanted it to look like it was holding the weight of rain. And I mean, like my head exploded. I was just like, holy, what? I have never ever thought to conceptualize or represent something like that in bonsai and i mean once you once he said it once it was like clear what his intention was it was just like whoa monumental that's monumental and brilliant and some people might say this tree needs wire right now but where scott had that tree at that moment in my mind it couldn't have been anything but that it was the very best iteration of that tree this is a tree that won best uh, North American native at the national show, I believe back in like 2010. I mean, this is a tree that already had history to it. So always something to like you learn and evolve and also something interesting. And I think cerebral about observing the different approaches and mentalities that are applied to the trees over the course of time. That, to wrap this up and go full circle, ties back into this notion of fear of change and fear of, uh, of evolution and fear of, of things being different than what they've been to this point. Yeah. And what, what a beautiful thing though, to be able to capture a moment in time that can, never be, that can never be brought back, that's gonna be different again tomorrow. And I think we've seen that expressed a lot with say like wind, with a lot of like Penjing sort of style trees yeah. representing that wind, but I've never seen a tree represented with the influence of rain. Right. It's like a, like a, a, yeah, a, um, an element that I hadn't seen expressed before. Yeah, yeah, that one was, that one was totally monumental to witness. Yeah, I, I think I, again, like I've I've said this, being in Melbourne for the native, um, the native uh, Australian Native Bonsai Clubs exhibition back in May and seeing all of the natives Australian trees it's like okay Australia is already moving in its own direction I mean it's the material is is forcing that to happen I think the pride of the environment and culture that Australians have for this landscape and what it means to be Australian all of those cultural components are also creating that but 
uh, so fascinating to see the desire to explore and play with that concept. And I think the more native material that becomes a natural part of Australian bonsai, the more undeniable some of those da currently daring or controversial moves, the more undeniable and commonly accepted and trusted those are gonna become over the course of time. I think the, the debate about changing those things right now is, is a natural part of the evolution and flux that occurs when a bonsai culture is experiencing a tremendous amount of growth. And that's, I think that's where Australia is right now. And it's, it is really special to get to be a part and uh, to be in the middle, you know, for you guys to be in the middle of that. And I said it in Melbourne, you know, congratulations, enjoy this ride, because this is a very special time in Australian bonsai. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, and I was saying to you before, before we started recording that, you know, some of those trees that were on display um, looking at them was an emotional experience for me, which I haven't experienced before. I mean, even being in your garden and being wowed and, and amazed at the things that you've created, I don't have that emotional connection to your sure. species. Sure. I can look at it and go, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that, that's it looks just awesome. It looks awesome. Yeah. But, we, you know, you've spoken about your affinity with the Ponderosa pine and how that, that tree has significant history to you growing up and doing mm -hmm. things with your dad and, um, you know, seeing our native trees exhibited at that level and then being taken back to moments in time that I had forgotten about over the years was quite moving. Mm. Yeah. 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 And it's, isn't bonsai fascinating? Cause you never know when it's going to hit you. You never know when you're going to like tap that chord of reminiscent history or nostalgia. It's like a smell almost. You know how you can have a smell and it takes you back to a moment in time and you get emotional about it, but yeah, you don't really understand absolutely. why? Absolutely, yeah. It triggers, it triggers the whole set of memory, how you felt at that point in time, the context and circumstances around that moment. It's really, really powerful. But I also think this is where there's a lot of untapped opportunity in bonsai in terms of the way that you present this to people, to the public, to a community being able to tap into all of those different sensory experiences, bonsai could become one of those memories for somebody that occurs over the course of time. And the use of smell and the use of sound and the use of feel and sensation with the visual impression that a bonsai can leave on somebody, you could literally connect every sense and experience in one moment to create almost an, uh, it becomes unforgettable like an unforgettable sensation when somebody connects with that tree and has all of the other senses stimulated. I mean, this is like an exhibition on a whole new level. Imagine that, imagine having an exhibition where you were able to control the climate of where that exhibition's being exhibited to be able to control the smell that might be being pumped into that room, the lighting that you would, that you would encounter, like for example, like the redwoods. I mean, I think you're-, you're, you're You know, like you're, if you could create that multi-fact, like that multi-sensory experience for people, that'd. God, I think something like that would almost bring me to tears. You're, you're, you're basically, I mean, that's, that's sort of where I would love for the Artisan's Cup to go. I mean, this is... Even the sounds, you know, the sounds of like a forest. The, oh. Absolutely. But, but I think like any time, and this is where every individual would execute this, I think, differently. Mm. But I think one of the most important aspects of those is not for your senses to be overwhelmed, mm. but for your senses to randomly and haphazardly discover that. And so how do you make smell a, a momentary singular location experience, right? Where you walk through the room 
and you be able, may be able to miss the smell in nine out of the 10 portions of that room if it were broken up into a grid, but you hit that one and you get that smell and you see that tree at that moment, or you walk by that, by that single place where that pointed amount of sound mm -hmm. is existing and some people aren't gonna hear it, but some people are. And you take that risk for not everybody to have that experience. You don't so overtly share that, but you allow that to be discovered so that that point of magic and mystery that really creates that fondness of memory, that fascination with the way that it was presented and the intentionality behind the, the very subtle nature in which you've engaged those senses all add to the quality of how that tree was created and the context in which it was presented. I find that to be just absolutely orgasmically interesting. I'm getting goosebumps just like hearing, like having, <laughs> having this conversation. Oh yeah. man, I, I, I mean, um, you know, there's a reason that the Artisan's Cup hasn't been uh, performed again since we did it in 2015. And a large part of it is just well, you've got to level up, right? You've got to do something. Yeah, and I mean, to, I mean, yeah. leveling up, leveling up could be like, you know, the American version of leveling up would be like, be like bigger, better. Yeah, you know, it's not going to be bigger, but, but know, it certainly can be better. But I know that your personality type is you want to, you want to take it to another level. I, I mean, yeah, you have to take what you learned. Mm. And then apply it to further, I, th I think, further experiment and play and provide opportunity. And, uh, you know, ultimately, the Artisan's Cup, one of the guilty pleasures of the Artisan's Cup was getting to walk through the Artisan's Cup. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, that was something that I wanted to see badly enough. I was willing to build it. Yeah. You know, this next Artisan's Cup that happens, it's something that I want to experience badly enough to figure out how to make that experience possible. And that means it's a lot of, it's an awful lot of work yeah but boy I, I you know i would almost want it to be to a degree that i don't i am unaware of all of the elements that are going to be presented which means you then work with really trusted collaborators to allow i i want to experience it just like everybody else does mm -hmm. i mean holy shit who wouldn't want to right but it's it's um when we have this discussion and then thinking back to how bonsais are traditionally displayed mm -hmm. like what i mean <clears throat> i guess we need the past to discover the future but when you think about like trying to put a tree into a display which is completely artificial which is completely stark it's and mm. i know you started to touch on this with lighting at the artisan's cup right but it just makes sense to create that experience for people that it, it just takes them to another place rather than just like a, a stark room with lights and, and everything just being in a completely artificial environment. Yeah, and I think like when you start to conceptualize something like this, it's like if you if you dismember the, the application or the concept too much too quickly, mm. uh, I think sometimes the shock effect can potentially nullify or completely destroy the impact and so in that manner of display there's like an accepted traditional method of display there's accepted traditional tools to that method and probably over the course of time I would imagine those will get dismantled and restructured and reconsidered and potentially some of those may not stick anymore but if you want people to truly take in for the original Artisan's Cup, obviously the lighting and the, the structure and the environment, those were kind of your three big things. 
you know, messing with what people could use for display wasn't going to work. If the next one is experience in terms of smell and sound and nostalgic creating concepts to the context of presentation, it seems like that's really where the focus has got to be. But at some point, I, I think there will be an exhibition that plays with the elements and the elements of what makes a communicative composition capable of representing the elements the artist desires to be in compatibility with the tree. And I think there's a lot of elements that are not or have never been attempted to be utilized that could represent very beautiful things. Do you think that's because of dogma or do you think it's just, this is just a natural progression and this is how it's meant to be? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think it prob I think probably a lot of it is dogma, but I also think probably a lot of it is permission. Mm, yeah. Like, uh, you know, when is that okay? And can we do that? And is it is it right? And how do we do that well so that it... Uh, Mr. Kramer used to always say, if you're going to change something, your solution to the change has to be better than the original product. Otherwise, you shouldn't change it. Well, that's a big... That's a big thing to achieve with a new idea, right? That's to, to usurp or to even come close to the quality of the original concept is difficult because that concept that's become potentially dogma has been created over a very long time with a lot of execution and a lot of perfection. So all of a sudden, it's like, wow, if you're going to start to tamper with that model, you better really think, you better really think hard. If you're going to restyle a historical tree, you better think really hard about what you're going to do. Because if it's anywhere that's near or below the original as the new sort of representation, boy, that's a failure. And that's that, I mean, but you have to be willing to fail. You have to be willing to try. But man, that's risky. Well, risky, say, risky, uh, risky business right there. No risk, no reward, right? Sure, sure. And, and failure's got to be a part of it to learn. Of course. Well, we don't learn from success. We learn from failure. I think, in my experience anyway, I mean, it's only when, when things don't go according to plan and, and, and you didn't sort of hit a home run that you have that impulse to self-reflect and to work on what you need to work on to be able to execute it better next time. Um, so... And, and people don't like change as humans. We, there's only so much, as you said, there's only so much change that we can process at a time. So I think that not only are you fighting the reality of trying to make something better, you're also fighting the fact that people don't like change. So yeah. it's gotta be an absolute home run. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that whole change thing kind of flies in the face of bonsai in general. Well, it's a it's a it's an art form that's, based on a lot of it based on tradition and and handed down technique and, and concepts and ideas so to break free from that i mean it's it it bonsai as a japanese art form is bonsai as a representation of nature is not and i think that's also where you sort of continue to close the circle on you know, a tree can be a bonsai. A piece of material can lend itself to being a bonsai. That proportion, that form, the, gold, the golden rule, and all of the things that come with that. Or it can be a representation of nature and deviate. And I think you really do prime people to be able to digest 
a little bit more exploratory con uh, context behind the presentation of a tree when you are working with a representation of nature as opposed to when you're trying to manipulate a very cultural form. And, and somewhere inside of there, there's this discussion of cultural appropriation and there is a, a discussion of do you call something that, that doesn't abide by the bounds of bonsai, quote bonsai in the Japanese spirit and execution of the art form do you call it the same thing? And at some point, the the answer is probably no, just like the Japanese didn't continue to call pinging pinging when they made bonsai, and it had a lot closer application to their belief system. But I think that, too, is a conversation that there has not been enough exploration and maturity of the idea. There hasn't been enough exercising of the muscle to actually have something authentically and organically mark that moment where that change and that disconnect and that sort of shift has occurred. I don't think it's occurred yet. Well, every journey begins with a first step, right? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to the next Artisans Cup based on this conversation. I should book my tickets now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2021. <sighs> I think it's going to be a good year. Uh, could be a good year. Could be a good year. Good talking to you, David. Thanks, buddy. You too.